BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I want to use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing her. He has said that the video doesn't represent who he is, but I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is. From everything I see has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet, no puppet. It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America. I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. There's no doubt about it. This is a nation divided. And increasingly, as we count down the 11 remaining days until the election, the country is far more fractured than just left versus right or Republican versus Democrat or Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Though a Clinton victory is not a foregone conclusion, the prospect of it and the polls have revealed a dark discontent within the Republican Party. And so this ever-present divide between the establishment and the outsiders, the GOP leadership and Trump supporters, has deepened into a chasm. And it's placed the party on the brink of what could be a revolt. But before we get to the revolutionaries, let's start with the party elites that they're so angry at. I'm here with two colleagues who have studied the GOP, its presidential candidates, and its voters for years, Maggie Haberman and Nick Confessori. Hey, Michael. Uh, Hi, Michael. Here's where we are, guys. The vast apparatus of a once proud Republican Party has basically found that tens of millions of its own members rejects its vision, reviles its leaders, and basically wants to kick them out of power. How do you even begin to recover from that? It's going to take some time. Things have been heading this way for a while for the Republican Party. This isn't a development that just happened with Trump. Trump tapped into something, and we're seeing it more prominently. I think there was a perfect storm that led to Trump's nomination. I don't think anybody else could have done what he did, because we're really talking about essentially somewhere between 30 percent and 40 percent of the Republican Party. That's not enough under most circumstances to win uh, the nomination with. But I do think— Because of the size of the field. Exactly. In this case, he was facing 16 other people. So it was divided enough that he was just able to go by with his 25 percent, 30 percent for long enough. Uh, The party has to figure out what it is, what it stands for, and how to keep its voters engaged. One of the reasons that we have seen the Republican National Committee, particularly the chairman, Reince Priebus, hold Trump closely. And and Priebus has, you know, his allies say walked a careful line. His critics say played both sides. But Priebus has tried not to offend the Trump voters because he knows that is the party's base. And so it's going to be tricky going forward to figure out exactly what this party cohesively stands for. That's right. Look, I think it has to decide if it wants to be a party of the right or the center right. You can't be both a party of center right conservatism in a like a multicultural country in the future, and be the party of toxic white resentment against declining power. You can't be both of those things. So either a leader emerges 
who can appeal to the better angels of people who feel resentful and left out and bring them along, or you have a third party or a new party. I want to take you back to a company called Friendster for a minute. This might seem like a weird segue, but it's not. <laughs> Did you guys remember Friendster? I do. I do, too. It's the first social media platform yes. I ever used. So, and Michael, if you had an account right now, I would write you a testimonial saying how great you are. Thank you. So That's right. That is how that works. If you're the CEO of Friendster and you've got this giant brand and you've just lost all your customers, they've flocked to some rival company, and you totally misread your audience, it seems like you have two options. You either close up, or at the very least, you relinquish leadership, and you find someone else to run it. Is that a scenario for the party? I mean, I would say it's a bit of a faulty analogy, and here's why. Damn you. I know. It was good. It's a good analogy, except that there is only one brand right now. That's the Republican Party. And the Republican Party controls that brand. They control the franchise. They control the name, the voter file, uh, the committee organization, the party structure. There is no Facebook. There rival. is no Facebook. Um, so the question is really, is there some startup out there that is a post-Republican party that comes along and eats its lunch either from the right or the center? So really it's more like, I don't know. Uh, Vine or, or no, actually, you know, it's more like Didn't Periscope. Didn't Vine just go out of business? It's more like Periscope <laughs> followed by Snapchat. <laughs> so wow. Nick, I'm sorry, I'm just ma making my way through that. Well, I want to ask you, like, who is the Republican Party right now? If you pull back the curtain, who are the leaders who kind of keep this thing afloat? Look, I, it's essentially a collection of, as one uh, Republican strategist put it to me several months ago, even before we got to this point of break, uh, it's a collection of tribes that exist under one banner. So, and there's sort of no through line between their interests. So you have a donor class that really supports the idea of immigration reform. You have a conservative base uh, that is very strongly anti-immigration, is concerned about free trade, uh, is very nativist. You have elites and cons movement conservatives in Washington, like House Speaker Paul Ryan. At the moment, the people who speak for the Republican Party the strongest are still the leadership in Washington. And that's where you were going to see, I think, some of the hardest strikes come in this mess of whatever happens over the next six months. But that will mean a likely replacement of the party chairman. It will mean efforts potentially to try to unseat House Speaker Ryan. It could potentially mean uh, challenges, I think this will be a little harder, uh, to Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader who is currently the majority leader, uh, could, depending on what happens on Election Day, become the minority leader. That's not going to change. But what we are seeing, and this is true on the Democratic side, too, the hardest threat to the two-party system that we have seen in a long time. Nick, because you're my desk mate, I know you well. And Excuse I've heard me, you say, I, 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 sit there too. I mean, literally directly next to me, you're like diagonally behind. Um, <laughs> you ever, I've heard you basically talk about the idea that there really isn't a party at the moment. You know, if you look at it a different way, I mean, Maggie's filter, it's like, who are the voters? Who are the fashions of voters? If you look at it structurally... Who controls the flow of money? Who controls the apparatus? There's really not a party, right? There is a formal party, which is controlled by Trump through the election day. Uh, there is a set of shadow parties controlled by wealthy donors, uh, Charles and David Koch, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Um, and these shadow parties operate for their own ends and vie for influence and precedence within the Republican Party. And then, of course, there are the voters who largely side with Trump. And the truth is, in most cases, all these forces are more or less aligned towards the same goal. And what's happened in the Republican Party over the last five years is that there has been a huge gulf that has opened up between the voters of the party and the leadership of the party. 
and there is nothing quite like it on the left. There are tastes of it on the left, but if you talk to elite donors on the Democratic side, the rich people, they basically want all the same things that most of the voters in the party also want. So there isn't that same divide. There's some suspicion from the Bernie Sanders folks. There's a, a surging left wing. But you can find lots of liberal donors who believe in the Elizabeth Warren model. I want to talk about revenge because revenge is on Donald Trump's brain. And Maggie, you've written about this a lot. I'm actually a little confused about how Donald Trump is going to exact this revenge. Let's take Paul Ryan, who you just mentioned. He just won his re-election primary. Mm -hmm. He faces no real opposition. How is Donald Trump and the army behind him exactly supposed to punish Paul Ryan or someone like him? So I think that what we would see is not trying to impact Ryan in his own race, but trying to impact Ryan as the House leader. So that would mean sort of trying to appeal to more conservative members, uh, flamethrowers, members of the Freedom Caucus, who might want to try to harm Ryan in some way or exact some kind of a policy concession from him. You know, that's one way that I think you'll see this. The other way I think that you will see it, um, and this is sort of an extension uh, of Trump, but the website Breitbart, which is run by Trump's uh, campaign CEO, Steve Bannon, has been savage against Ryan for a very, very long time, long predating Bannon formally joining the Trump campaign. Uh, recently, they put out a 3,000-word story that I think the, the headline of it was, I'm with her. And it was about Paul Ryan inside his you know, effort to elect Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't Fact think, check, not entirely true. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Ryan is, is actively trying to elect Hillary Clinton, but he's Pants certainly, he's certainly not, or something, um, or like a pocket on fire, but he's certainly not work, he's not working in tandem with Trump. And that's been true for a long time. So I think that you will see sort of the, the more um, policy driven pressure points, and then you will see the end of personal humiliation that Trump tends to enjoy and revel in a lot more. He seems to, as one longtime observer of him put to me uh, the other night, he seems to enjoy breaking people or trying to break people. And I think you're going to see some of that. Nick, do you think that Trump wants to reshape the Republican Party, whether he, lo whether he loses or whether he wins, or it's disruption for its own sake? I'm starting to think that it's disruption for two sakes, one for its own sake and two for Trump's sake. What we see in recent days is the behavior of a guy who is not trying to win the election. He is trying to win the post-election. I agree with that. So what does that mean? So we've talked a lot about a, you know, Trump TV or some kind of a Trump media enterprise. And I think people are maybe chasing a bit of a red herring on the Trump TV aspect as though it's going to be a whole new channel. There are all different kinds of ways you can have what is essentially a Trump, like a media property right, or a PAC. If he creates it. And we're going to talk about that and in a minute. even if he doesn't, and here's why that's important. Um, you know, there's an old saying that every movement, you know, kind of ends as a scam. Uh, the Tea Party movement started out as a grassroots movement of citizens with some participation by big donors. Um, what it is now, um, when you look at Tea Party organizations, they are direct mail fundraising groups. What they do is send out some letters saying, Paul Ryan is betraying you. And they send them out every day and they get money back from retired grandpas and they put that money into the pockets of their consultants, and they spend the rest of it on more ads saying Paul Ryan is betraying you. And that has been the model for a lot of these groups that we call scam packs because they don't actually spend any money on politics. They spend money on fomenting an idea of permanent betrayal yes. and conflict within right. their own party, and they make a ton of money doing it. It is not hard to see, if you squint and look towards the future, Trump or the people around him 
creating the monster version of this between Breitbart and some fundraising and the Trump list from this campaign if he chooses to rent or buy it. You could see him doing this on a massive scale with Trump as the figurehead instead of just a random assessment of uh, or a, a assortment rather uh, of consultants and sort of Tea Party candidates. And you saw what that did to the Republican Party between 2010 and 2016 and how it split them and caused a civil war. And that was when it was sort of small scale by the standards of what we're talking about here. Now imagine that that is led by the party's last nominee and it could right. go on forever. If there's a Trump media empire built after this campaign, as we all suspect there might be and they're contemplating, and it's a rival to Fox News or to the traditional organs of the Republican media, in what direction do you think this Trump media wants to take the Republican Party? In other words, if there's a Republican ideal that the Trump media empire would envision, what would it look like? I, I think that the ideal uh, involves dollar signs um, and big piles of money, and that's about as far as they've gone. I don't I don't think this is ideologically driven other than that, you know, for, for Steve Bannon, who I think does have an ideology and he's a, you know, unapologetic nationalist, there is an anti-establishment agenda. Trump just likes fighting um, and Trump likes making money. And so I think that I think that that's where uh, Trump is is coming from. In terms of it being a rival to Fox, and I know that that has been sort of the, there's there was a, a Business Week story today that described Trump as quote unquote enamored of the idea, and so that five media companies have approached them. I'm very skeptical that five five large media companies have approached them. I've also heard that Trump is lukewarm at best about this idea because Trump doesn't like spending any of his own money, and this is actually a huge investment. It's very hard to be on at parity with Fox News. Like, it's really hard to create your own cable channel. And so look at Oprah. I mean, this is not, the ground is sort of littered with failures at this. There's no reason to think that Trump TV or Trump whatever would be more successful. What they have spent months doing is building this uh, digital data list. And a person close to the campaign had told me it had sort of nominally uh, useful application for a campaign. It could help you fundraise. But it's not going to help you target voters or do any of the things that you're supposed to use data for in a campaign. So this is, you know, a list that they could sell or that they could use to attract consumers. But I don't think that this is about trying to drive the Republican Party for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a Republican, honestly. He, and he has said that. He is running as a Republican. But he himself is a fairly strangely ide ideologically defined candidate. I want to bring it back to the party. With Trump as a nominee, saying the things he says, doing the things he does, behaving the way he behaves, which group of reliable Republican voters is feeling most alienated right now and is at greatest risk of maybe not coming back after this election? You know, my feeling is it's actually the Trump voters who feel most alienated from their own party and who are at most at a risk of not Interesting. coming back. Interesting. Uh, it's not... You know, married white women, right, the proverbial stronghold for, for center-right Republicans are going to come back when they get a, a normal candidate like a, a Rubio or a Ben Sass, the Nebraska senator who has been a prominent anti-Trump conservative voice. But I think that the core Trump voters have been fed a diet of outrage and a reason for why they feel resentful and unhappy in the purest form, the good stuff, right? And... Having had a taste for that, it's really hard for me to imagine that they go back to being the silent junior partners in the Republican coalition, where the candidates talk about small business and free enterprise and traditional values, when 40% of the party 
has demonstrated that their attachment to these ideas is either tenuous or opposed. That's right. And, you know, Trump has shown what the real deal looks like for them. I wonder if you guys think the Republican Party leaders take some kind of solace in what happened after 2010 when it looked like the Tea Party was a revolution that they'd have to contend with. And in reality, they kind of put it down. They've dealt with some rebellions in the House, not as much in the Senate. And it's more of a nuisance than an existential threat. And do you think that they think that that's what the Trump movement is to them? No, I don't. I think the lesson of 2014 was that if you actually ran primary campaigns, you could take on the insurgents, but that was in statewide races. I think that they have learned that this is a much more restive group of voters than they had believed and who are much angrier and frustrated with what is happening. But I think that they have seen loud and clear that this is who their party's voters are. To Nick's point earlier, their policies and where they want to take the party is out of step with a large number of their voters. And there are, are a segment of their voters who are voting on the issue of race, who are motivated by racially charged, polarizing grievances. And the party's got to figure out how to deal with that. Do you think, Nick, that that helps explain why people who went on camera and said, I reject Donald Trump, I won't endorse him, are doing these crazy backflips? And I, I use the example of Representative Jason Chaffetz of Utah, who seemed to be taking a really principled stand that he could not support Donald Trump. And this went on Twitter within the last 24 hours and said, ah, backsies, uh, I can't stand Hillary. She's bad for America. And although I will not endorse Donald Trump, I will vote for him. A distinction, by the way, without a difference. <laughs> Are these people afraid of, of what Maggie just described, that they, they now foresee a Hillary Clinton victory and they're basically saying, oh, no, I can't be seen as abetting that because that electoral force will come after me. I mean, absolutely. I think that anytime you see a candidate who's a Republican do one of these weird reverse handspring backflips, that what's behind it is a deluge of angry phone calls to the House switchboard. Right. Um, I think they are feeling extraordinary pressure from those Trump voters. And so in this fairly obvious and sometimes pathetic way, they're trying to draw a distinction between endorsing or embracing Trump and voting for him. I'm a little confused by it personally. I I'm, I try and think like what Trump voter would say, man, I'm going to go after that guy if he doesn't endorse him. But if he votes for him, that's fine. Because it seems like a weird thing. On the other hand, you know, perhaps the real crux of it for some of these voters is who are you going to vote for? And are you with my guy Trump or not? I want to end by asking you both about the concept of reinvention and whether it ever works within a party. Because back in 2012, when I was covering Mitt Romney and you were covering um, everybody. both sides, yeah. and you were covering the Republican side, we all remember the autopsy. Yep. It was known within the political world by those two simple words. It was Mitt Romney's loss leading to a methodical study of what was wrong with the Republican Party and the Republican brand. And they wrote this report and they gave it out to the world. And my question is, was that a completely futile exercise? And are such exercises and therefore all attempts to remake a party like the Republican Party essentially futile? I think not. Um, If you look for some instructive history on the Democratic side, in the 1980s and the early 90s, Bill Clinton was part of a group of Democrats that were trying to bring the party towards the center help it shed its reputation for being anti-business, uh, a party of special interests, a party of the entrenched interest in Washington. And it took 
three embarrassing losses in a row, which, by the way, is about what we're about to get up right. to if the polls are right about yep. Hillary Clinton. It, it took Trump three loses. elections in a row for that really to take hold. You saw this group of Democrats fail and fail again. They were kind of interestingly backed by big money. And ultimately, what helped them prevail on issues like welfare reform uh, and, and some debates over budgeting and fiscal policy was the terrible stench of defeat and the fact that a political party only exists, it lives to win and fill office. And if it can't do that, it can't do anything. It's not good for anything. That car doesn't drive. And so eventually, after three losses in a row, when people are writing books about how Republicans had a natural permanent lock on the presidency and Democrats would be a permanent congressional party, finally, they got a guy like Bill Clinton who ran a platform that was a little more center-left, and he won the presidency, and he kicked off a golden age for Democrats in terms of the White House. So it's possible. It is possible. Maggie and Nick, I want to thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So Nick Confessori says parties can reinvent themselves. But that requires dissatisfied voters to buy into the new vision, to believe that the change is real and that it can be trusted. The question for the Republican Party is whether disillusioned Trump supporters who feel so betrayed by their party could ever back the GOP without Donald Trump as its nominee. I'm joined on the phone by Ashley Parker, who covers Trump and spends day after day at his rallies. She talks to the very voters the GOP needs to win back after this election. Hey, Ashley. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been attending these Trump rallies for months now. I want you to tell us about the mood now compared to what you were seeing, you know, a year ago when you first started. Sure. The mood has gotten a lot darker, both from the voters and from Donald Trump himself. So, for instance, it used to be that Trump was always good at stirring up kind of outrage at the media. So if in the middle of his speech he would he would call out the media and he would say, you know, look at that despicable scum back there. And the voters would sort of willingly, if on command, turn around and, and boo us and jeer us. Um, but they, they had to be prodded by Trump. Now, when we walk into a lot of these arenas, they immediately just start jeering and booing and kind of the whole auditorium will roar obscenities against us, totally wow. unprovoked and totally unprompted. That's one change. And you can also see it in in Trump's demeanor himself. I mean, some days he's he's subdued. Some days he's sort of, you can see him kind of psychologically trying to come to grips with what a loss would be like. Um, you know, so, some days he's sort of more erratic. I mean, he sort of feels like someone who deep down maybe recognizes he's losing but can't quite bring himself to admit it. So you see it kind of pulsing up under the surface and in ways in his speech. You've spoken in the last couple of days to supporters of Trump who've echoed a lot of language that he uses about this being a rigged election and that if Hillary wins, which she allows might happen, 
it'll be because of electoral fraud. I want to listen for just a second to some of a conversation you had with a couple, Paul Swick and his wife, Teresa. It's a little hard to hear because the rally is so loud, but you can make out what they're talking about. So if she does win and you believe, as Mr. Trump believes, that it is a rigged election or that it may have been stolen, what, if anything, do you do? I have no clue. (laughs) I'm scared to answer that question. Because I know there's a lot of people in the country that are ready to raise up arms if that happens. And as much as... As much as that sounds like a good thing, it's not. So, yeah, it's a scary situation. So, so you would not be among the people who would raise up arms? Oh, no, I'm, I'm well armed. I would be one of those people. But it's not something I pray for or hope for. It's something I'm willing to do, but the last, last result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're almost casual in talking about this, both the fact that they believe this is a rigged election in their words, but also they themselves would take up arms in order to fight the result of that election. How common is it to hear voters at Trump rallies talk like that? Is it really representative or is are these folks outliers? I, two things. First, I'd say it's mixed, right? So there there were people who talked about, you know, they feared or they, they thought there would be a, you know, coup by the people against the government, a revolutionary war, there might be bloodshed. Those are all sort of verbatim quotes we heard um, from about a third of the people we talked to. And, and that's them bringing it up unprompted, which is kind of striking. You and I covered Romney. Right. And, you know, if we had interviewed you know, five dozen voters. I can't imagine there would have been that many supporters talking about, you know, taking their 50 guns to overthrow the White House. Right. People in cardigans don't start rebellions. Correct. (laughs) But there were, you know, there were also just as many and certainly more voters who said, you know, when you say, what would you do if you lost? And it's, you know, what what could I do? I'm one vote. I'm one voice. I'd go back to my regular life. You know, I'd, I'd vote again in four years. I'd try to make changes on the local level. I'd tune out Hillary entirely. I'd support the next president. One woman who we ended the story with said, I'd be so worried that Hillary would get impeached. But you know what? I would pray for the next president, whoever he or she is. So you sort of get both. I want to know how much you think this all comes from Trump himself and the language that is using? Has he basically trained people to think and talk this way rather than it being some kind of organic reaction to the moment we're in? You know, what? one thing I think he's done is he's clear, he's made acceptable a sort of rhetoric and language and, and way of thinking that certainly may have existed before, but people felt less comfortable voicing. So, you know, there were certainly sentiments, um, racist sentiments or anti-Hispanic sentiments, but I don't know that in a different period someone would have been so comfortable using that language or voicing those ideas, you know, on the record to a reporter. I do think that he has kind of fanned the fears and really put front and center this idea that the election would be rigged and it would be stolen and what went from kind of maybe general distrust or unease of, you know, a biased system or a biased media, they now sort of are taking cues from him and have the language to, you know, speak of an election stolen or an election rigged or dead people voting or or voter fraud. You know, the sort of ideas that if you really believe them undermine the fundamentals of democracy. I wonder what exactly Trump is saying in these final days of the election. What's the precise message that you're hearing at these rallies from him to these very riled up and and no doubt fearful followers of his? 
It's, you know, it, it depends on the day and his mood, but it's a couple things. One is that, you know, if we don't win this, it will have been such a waste of time, such a disgraceful, you know, waste of his time. Um, the sense that if they don't win, it's because the media is despicable, dishonest scum, the system is rigged, the election may be stolen. But in some of his other moments, you know, his pitches that I'm, I'm a champion for you and I'm going to bring back jobs and I'm going to help raise your wages and, you know, you're a young African-American mother in a community and I'm going to make it so that when you and your son walk to the store, you don't have to worry about gun violence. So it's been very mixed. I mean, he's veering so violently from, from one thing to an entirely other thing. Absolutely. To watch a speech of his in one moment, he says, you know, I'm going to be your champion. I'm going to help you. We're in this together. And then in the next second, and oh, by the way, all you female accusers who, you know, have come forward to say I groped you, I'm going to sue you and I'm going to lock Hillary up as soon as I get to the Oval Office. Um, So it's sort of a very rapidly cycling message. I want to know how much the voters you talked to at these rallies are preparing themselves for a loss by Donald Trump? That's an interesting question. I think they sort of, if they're being honest with themselves, know that it's going to be harder for him. But they truly believe what he believes, which is there's this silent majority who either the polls may not be picking up or some of them say, you know, are embarrassed to identify themselves in the polls, but are going to come out and vote. I talked to one man in Pennsylvania who said, He has a Ph.D. He's a pharmacologist. All of his friends are typically Ivy League educated, advanced degrees. And he said he was at a dinner party and they asked who he was voting for. And he said and it was really hard for me to say Donald Trump because there's a real stigma attached to that. But, you know, I'm going to go in the voting booth and I'm going to vote for him. And I think there's a lot of other people like me. A lot of these voters feel that Donald Trump and this campaign have given them a recognition and a voice that they thoroughly lacked in the past. And I wonder how they start to think about Hillary Clinton as the president-elect and if they feel terrified or if they suddenly feel like this voice they had is about to be silenced and forgotten. I, I think they don't think that Hillary's policies will help them and that she fundamentally understands them or cares about them. And even the promise she makes that should be aligned with what they want. They simply do not believe because they don't trust her. So, for instance, the biggest concern everyone had was that she was going to come and take away their guns. And I said, you know, Hillary has said she believes in the Second Amendment. She would just want certain restrictions, right, tighter background checks. And they said, you know, I, I just don't believe her. I don't believe that she won't get an office and come and confiscate all of our guns. So I think there's a sense that no matter what she says or does, they cannot trust her and it will not be in their best interest. You and I covered the Republican Party in 2012 together, and you've covered them in the four years since you know the way that they think. Are they prepared to find a way to reincorporate this kind of voter into the party, to find a way to satisfy them and speak to them? That's a good question because... This election, in some ways, can be seen as what happens in a way when a lot of these Republican leaders condescended to this group of voters and would kind of get them all riled up and tap into them when they needed them for an issue and thought they could control them. And sort of like a like a wildfire, they, they got out of control and they actually demanded stuff. And I think if, if you patronize them, um, 
they're not a stupid group of people. And they've recognized that for years their leaders have said, you know, vote Republican and we'll repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, that hasn't happened. You know, vote Republican and we'll do this. We'll protect this right of yours or we'll do this on immigration. And it simply hasn't happened. And so a lot of these voters are no longer satisfied taking these promises. Um, so I don't know if they can be incorporated back in the party. And I, I think these voters would demand tangible results and tangible actions that I don't know that the establishment is willing to provide. If it were up to the voters that you talk to day in and day out at this rallies, what would happen to the Republican Party as we know it and they know it? I think they would burn it down. Um, Not that they like the Democrats anymore, but they sort of want what Trump offered, which is a leader who channels them and understands them and hears them and is bound sort of by no ideology at all. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's time to talk to Nate Cohn from The Upshot. Hey, Nate, what's our number? The number is 22. And what is that? It's a 22-point lead for Hillary Clinton in the North Carolina early vote so far with now over a million votes cast. How do you get that data? How do we know how the early vote is breaking? So the North Carolina Board of Elections every day publishes a person-by-person breakdown of who voted. Like, you can actually see their names. We know their party. We know their race. We know where they live. Everything you need to know the North Carolina state is publishing about these people. And we conducted polls in North Carolina using the same sort of information. We can actually look at our respondents who have since voted early, or we can use statistical models to sort of guess, given the characteristics of the people who have voted, and what we can infer about those characteristics from our poll respondents, how we think those people are voting. And both those things tell us the same thing. Our poll respondents who have voted early were overwhelmingly Clinton supporters, and when you look at their demographic characteristics, It's a diverse and a heavily Democratic group of people who have voted. Nate, run-up listeners know from you that North Carolina is a pivotal state. So this 22-point lead Hillary Clinton has, what does it tell us about what's going to happen on November 8th? Well, I think North Carolina is a really important state to Donald Trump's chances. If he can't win there, he's not going to win the presidency. The polls have consistently shown that Hillary Clinton is ahead in North Carolina. In fact, every poll since the first presidential debate, with the exception of one Republican poll, has shown Hillary Clinton ahead there. And, you know, to me, what the early vote tells us is that the polls are largely right about the expected turnout. There's not going to be some crazy, you know, hiccup in the turnout where Democrats stay home. This shows that the turnout is basically on track for Hillary Clinton to get what the polls say she's supposed to get. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here on Tuesday. There's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.